Thank you, Brenda and Angie and Nancy. And I tell you, the other night, sound checked that song. I just sat up there and laughed. These two are a joy, and uh, I'll, I'll sound check them anytime because that was a an interesting thirty minutes or so that we were over here. But it is good to see you this morning, and uh, I just want to say briefly uh, that I'm thankful to be at Brister, and uh, thankful the Lord brought us to Brister. I'm thankful the Lord brought us back to Brister. And I'm thankful for the relationship that Brother Eric and I have and uh, the flexibility that, uh, that that brings. As he mentioned last week, I was originally scheduled to preach last week, but due to uh, events that transpired in my grandmother's passing and, and all of that, we uh, flip-flopped, but it worked out uh, better because he got to preach last week on his 40th anniversary here, and then I'm preaching today my 10th anniversary of surrendering to the ministry, uh, but uh, that's uh, all well and, and good, and I'm glad to be able to do that. I had somewhere I was going with, with all of that, but oh, I know what it was. I know what it was. The reason that I originally, because he just, he, you know, we'll say, he'll say, when do you want to preach? And it's just kind of like, you know, see which way the wind's blowing, throw a dart at the calendar, and uh, say, that's Sunday. That's the way it works most of the time. But I said, I told him, I said, I want to preach on the third Sunday in July, because I've never preached at Bristol on the third Sunday in July. Up until last week, I had never been at Brister on the third Sunday in July, because that's usually when I preach a homecoming in Hampton, and uh, which comes as a family reunion, but you know, COVID messed all that up this year too, but so my streak continues. I've never preached at Brister <laughs> on the third Sunday in July. I think actually, I usually end up preaching on the fourth Sunday in July, because I preach the week after homecoming here most of the time, but uh, anyway, open your Bible to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14, it's where we'll be uh, for the most part this morning, a little bit of Mark's gospel, the same account, we'll look at what John says about as well, uh, just a little bit, but John chapter 14, this is the text uh, that was used on an extremely hot and extremely muggy and extremely humid Thursday night, July 22nd, 2010 at Daniel Springs Church Camp. If you've ever been to Gary, Texas? In the third week in July, you know it's the hottest place on earth, on the hottest week of the year, and this was Thursday night at church camp. And it was while the camp evangelists preached from this text that the Holy Spirit made it clear God's calling on my life, and I was not even a camper. I was the sponsor. I was there with First Baptist Church of Magnolia, and I remember uh, getting back, and, and I went over, and I, I talked to Dustin Wisely the next uh, day after we got back from camp, and then... During Sunday school on Sunday, I went in and talked to Brother David Watkins. And he said, what do you want to do? He said, oh, he, said, he said, Jeremy, okay, the Lord's calling you to preach. What do you want to do about it? I said, well, I guess I need to tell people, right? And so, so that Sunday morning, I did there at First Baptist. And, and uh, we'll get to the text uh, here very momentarily. But uh, you know the story. It's one of the most familiar passages of Scripture uh, one of the most familiar stories of Jesus, maybe, in the New Testament. It's taught, taught in all the children's Sunday school classes when Jesus walked on the water. And I am not going to attempt to preach the sermon the evangelist preached because I don't remember it. I just remember one thing that he said. You remember, Jesus is not the only one who walked on the water. I remember the camp evangelist. I remember it like it was yesterday as he was... He kept asking one big question. Is God calling you to step out of the boat? 
and I knew that God was calling me to step out of the boat, but we're going to look at this familiar text this morning, this familiar passage of Scripture, and I hope we'll look at it with a fresh set of eyes. Because as I, as I looked at it and I studied this passage of Scripture, I believe the Lord's got something for us in today. In the circumstances that are going on around us today, I believe there's a message for us in John, I mean, I'm sorry, in Matthew chapter 14. It never, excuse me, how God's Word reaches us where we're at and propels us to where we need to be. If only, we'll do one thing, and that's listen to it. A little background before we get into our text, which will begin in verse 22 of Matthew chapter 14. As we, am I in the monitor? Okay, well then maybe I just need to switch to the pulpit mic, or Jonathan got me fixed. Okay, we're good to go. And uh, been having some mic issues, and we'll continue to work on that. But if you look at what's just happened before we get to our text in Matthew chapter 14, Jesus has just fed the 5,000. And 5,000 plus the women and children who were there with five loaves and two fish. Five loaves and two fish, and Jesus fed... 5,000 plus people in, a, in an absolutely miraculous uh, account of, of, of a new creation of food. John's account says that those who were there in the feeding of the 5,000, they experienced the miracle and they recognized there was something special about Jesus. They recognized in some way that he was the, promise, uh, the promised Messiah, but they misunderstood it. Because John says this crowd wanted to take Jesus and make him king now. They wanted Jesus to set up his earthly ministry, his earthly kingdom on the earth right now. And John says they wanted to do it by force. And so it's in the midst of all this excitement, it's in the midst of all of this chaos that we pick up the story in Matthew chapter 14, beginning in verse 22. Here's how Matthew recalls the event. It says, Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there, but the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the truth of your word. 
And thank you that we could look into your word and we can see helps for our current situation. That your word can lead us and guide us today just as much as it led and it guided those who originally read it. Father, I pray that you would speak through your word and that you'd use me to deliver the message that you have for, for, for me and for this entire congregation and those who are watching online this morning. And I pray that you'd bless the teaching from your word. You've promised it won't return void, and I pray that we'd see that this morning. Be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at the text this morning, we've got a pure Baptist sermon this morning, three points, a couple definitions, and so it won't take long. But I want you to see this morning as we look into the text, something very important is Jesus had a plan. You know, there's something about having a plan. I'm a planner, and it bothers some people. Jeremy, why are you even worried about that right now? That's down the road because I want to know. I can't handle the stress of not knowing how this is all going to work out, okay? I want to have a plan. I think it's scriptural to have a plan. Jesus had a plan. We see a plan. It's a three-point plan. Don't you love that? A three-point sermon with a three-point plan. Jesus had a plan. His plan involved the disciples getting in the boat and heading out. It involved the crowd going away. Matthew doesn't tell us where. It just says they went away. Sometimes don't you wish the crowd would just go away? The crowd went away. And it involved Jesus going to pray. But Jesus had a plan. And as we look closer at the text we find out some very telling information about how this plan was put into place. Something I'll admit to you I'd never really thought about before sitting down to study this text for this message today. Look closely at verse 32. I mean, I'm sorry, at verse 22. Look very closely at Matthew 14, 22. It says, Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him, to the other side. Did you catch that? Jesus made his disciples get in the boat. And so I thought, I wonder if that word made means what I thought it meant. M-A-D-E. So I looked it up. I looked up in the concordance the, the Greek word to see what it meant. And you know what it means? It means he made them do it. Isn't that interesting? It can mean that he strongly urged them to get in the boat and go to the other side. But I don't believe that's the definition that we use for made here. It can mean that he compelled them, that he forced them, that he gave them no other choice. You ever had to make your kid do something? This is not a negotiation. You have no other choice. You're going to do this. No, you can't just eat three more bites of the mashed potatoes. You have to eat them all. This is not a negotiation. I believe that in some way, when we read this, immediately Jesus made his disciples get in the boat. I believe there was no negotiation. Jesus left no room for negotiation. He gave them an order. He told them to go. But I believe the best definition we find elsewhere where this same Greek word is translated, convinced. Jesus convinced his disciples to get in the boat and go to the other side. What is so significant about that definition? 
it tells us that they didn't want to go. That the disciples had another plan. The disciples may have thought their way was better. And Jesus had to convince them, no, you're going to do this. Think about it for a minute. Have you ever had to make somebody do something that they really wanted to do? No. If a kid wants, really wants to do something, you don't have to convince them. If your employee really wants to do something, you don't have to pull rank. We get absolutely no other context here as to what the disciples wanted to do or why they didn't want to get into the boat. But Matthew's writing, inspired by the Holy Spirit, tells us Jesus had to convince them to get in the boat. It was a part of his plan. Maybe the disciples had gotten caught up with the rest of the crowd. And maybe they wanted to make Jesus king on earth right now by force. Maybe these experienced fishermen who've spent night after night on the waters before. Maybe they could feel the storm brewing in the air. And they really didn't feel like it was a good idea. You ever done that? Maybe the Lord's telling you to do something and you, in your wisdom... Now, Lord, I just really don't think that's a good idea. Maybe that's what was going on. We don't know. But from what Matthew writes, we get the idea that getting in the boat and heading to the other side, especially without Jesus, was not on their agenda. But it's what Jesus wanted them to do. Because in just a little while, in just a little while, several hours later, They'd have one of the most amazing experiences they'd ever had. Now, yeah, they would almost die in the process. But they would have one of the most amazing experiences they've ever had. In just a little while, Peter would walk on water. And the rest of them would witness it. Now think. Had they not obeyed Jesus, Peter would have never walked on water. Had they not obeyed Jesus... The rest of them would have never gotten to witness that remarkable, miraculous event. And so it got me to thinking. How many blessings, how many miracles have I missed because I failed to obey Jesus? How many times in my life have I missed something big? that God wanted to do because I thought my preference should supersede his. Now let me tell you, I can't fix that. But what can I do? What can you do? We can do different moving forward, can't we? We can submit to the will of God moving forward in an effort not to miss those times. Following the will of God can be hard. Following the will of God can go against what our brain thinks is best. But it always pays off. The second thing you see this morning is that Jesus, not only does he have a plan, but sometimes Jesus' plan does not make sense. The Bible says that his ways are higher than ours, his thoughts are higher, higher than ours. We don't think on the same plane, on the same level as Jesus. So, of course, sometimes Jesus would have thoughts that don't make sense to us. This isn't the first time that Matthew has written about the disciples being in a boat in the middle of a storm. 
If we were to look back in Matthew chapter 8, we'd read the other story. And if you recall that story, and I encourage you to go back and read it later and check me on all this. If you remember that story, they're out on the boat. Jesus is asleep in the stern. Storm comes up. They're bailing water out of the boat. They think they're all about to die. And they go down and they wake Jesus up. And essentially, in our modern day language, they say, Don't you even care that our lives are at stake? And I just picture Jesus just casually getting up out of the bed. Nobody had to whisper sweet peace to Jesus. He is peace. And very peacefully, as that boat rocked from side to side, walking up to the top, and Mark says in Mark chapter 4 that Jesus simply looked out and he looked at the wind and he looked at the waves and he said, peace be still. And in an instant, the sea was like glass. You ever throw a, a pebble out across the water and it ripples? Let me tell you, that water didn't ripple after Jesus said, peace be still. It didn't have to take time to calm down. He said, peace be still, and it was like glass. Now we fast forward to Matthew chapter 14. And according to people who are a lot smarter than me, and there are a lot of those out there, the route the disciples were taking from point A to point B when Jesus made them get in the boat and go before him to the other side. The route they were taking, they should have never been more than one to two miles away from the land. But according to John's account of the same story, once the wind was pushing them because Matthew tells us the wind was contrary. Right? You understand contrary if you've been around children. So don't look at your husband's. Contrary means pushing in the opposite direction. John tells us in his account they're some three to four miles away from the land. They're way off course. Can you imagine how tired they must be? Fighting against the wind, fighting against the waves. In, in John's account, he tells us uh, in, in verse 25, I believe, in, in, in John's account, he, he says that it's the, the fourth watch of the night. No, Matthew says that it's in the fourth watch of the night. In the fourth watch of the night. When's that? Sometime around nine hours after they started. Sometime around nine hours later, they're in the middle of the lake, fighting against the winds. And they didn't have a motor on that boat. What they have? They had oars. They're physically fighting against the storm. Can you imagine how tired they are? Can you imagine that they're probably thinking, possibly thinking, boy, I wish Jesus was asleep in the boat. Jesus was with us last time this happened. Where is he at now? You ever had that happen? You're going through a storm in life and you say, hey, sure wish Jesus was here. Kind of feels like he abandoned me. Kind of feels like he's not even here. But let me tell you, that's not the case. Because if you'll turn with me to Mark chapter 6, it's the same story. It's just Mark's account of the story. And in Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 47, it says, Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and Jesus was alone on the land. 
Then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Did you catch that? They're out there fighting against the wind. They're fighting against the waves. Jesus hasn't abandoned them. He's looking at them the whole time. Isn't it comforting to know that in the deepest, darkest storms that life can throw our way, the eyes of the Lord are never off of us. He knows what's going on. And he stands ready and willing to help. In reality, they're probably not thinking about Jesus. All they're thinking about is staying alive. But Jesus never stopped thinking about them. I think that's one of the most beautiful aspects of this entire story. But look at verse 48 in Mark chapter 6 again. It says, He saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and would have passed them by. Did you catch what he said? Jesus came to them. Isn't it wonderful that in the darkest storms of life, we don't have to go looking for Jesus because he comes to us. And how did he come to them? Walking on the water. The same water they're fighting against. The same, the same thing that they're thinking is about to kill them, Jesus uses it to get to them. It's all a part of his plan. Remember from the very beginning, we said Jesus had a plan. His plan might not make sense. But in this plan, he used the storm to get to them. But do you see what else he also did in Matthew's account? When he told Peter, you know, Peter said, if it's you, command that I come to you. And Jesus said, come. In verse 29, and when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. You see, not only did Jesus use the storm, not only did Jesus use the sea to get to them, he used the storm and he used the sea to bring Peter to him. Maybe God allows us to go through storms in life to give us a way to get to him if we allow ourselves to get far enough away. Jesus always has a plan. His plan may not make sense, but one last thing is plan always serves a purpose. Mark gives us part of that purpose over there in Mark chapter 6. In Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 51... It says, Then Jesus went up into the boat to them, and the wind ceased. And they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled. For they had not understood about the loaves, because their heart was hardened. Do you see the purpose in all of this? Jesus had to do this. Jesus had to allow them into the storm. Jesus had to walk to them on the water. Jesus had to bring Peter to him on the water. Why? Because they just watched this miracle of taking five loaves and two fish and feeding over 5,000, and they didn't get it. They didn't see that and say, He is God. They didn't get that and say, He is the true Messiah. 
They didn't get that and bow down and worship. When you read all of the accounts of Jesus feeding the 5,000, when you read any of the gospel accounts of that, you don't find anybody worshiping. If anything, you find them asking for more food. Here's the deal. Jesus sees and knows our hearts. He knew that their hearts were hardened. There's one thing that hardens our hearts. It's a little nasty three-letter word called sin. And what is the core reason of all sin? I believe it's selfishness, self-centeredness. Because we'd rather do what we want to do than obey God. Their hearts were hardened. They didn't understand. But now they get it. We don't know exactly why their hearts were hardened. Except to say that sin is what does it. Mark says they didn't get it before. But now... Because what might have been one of the greatest physical struggles of their entire life. Now because they faced what they believed to be the brink of death. And Jesus brought them out of it. Now they get it. Look in Matthew chapter 14 again and verse 33. Then those who were in the boat came. And they worshipped him. And they said, truly you are the Son of God. Jesus' plan always intends to result in one thing. And that's his children worshiping him. That's the end result of it all. Paul tells us that in some very beautiful words that I want you to turn to in Philippians chapter 2. I want you to turn to that and look at them with me because there's something about looking at the Word of God and reading it for yourself instead of just hearing it that allows it to sink in a little more. At least it does for me. Jesus' plan intends for us to worship Him. And Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, that there's coming a day. He says, Therefore God also highly exalted Jesus, And gave him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's coming a day when every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess. The atheist on the street who you try to tell about Jesus and they cuss you and run you off, one day their knee will bow to Jesus. One day the the Muslim will bow to Jesus. The Hindu will bow to Jesus. One day Satan himself will bow to Jesus. But when this day comes, it's too late to make the decision. The decision has to be made today. Every knee shall bow. No exception. No exception. That's the plan. But the question is this. What does it take for God to get our attention 
so that we realize we need to bow now instead of being forced to bow then. What does it take for God to wake us up so that we stop focusing on ourselves and start focusing on him and on his desires? For the disciples, it took a raging sea And it took contrary winds. Maybe for you, maybe for me, it takes a really rough patch in life. Maybe you've gone through one recently. Maybe you're going through one now. And you're sitting there and you're wondering, is this all a part of God's plan to bring me closer to him? I'm telling you, it may very well be. I believe with all my heart that COVID-19 is in large part a part of God's plan to wake us up and to bring us closer to him. And I believe that's happening in a lot of places that people are waking up and that this disease, this virus, is bringing people to him. People say, oh, the government shut down the church. No, they didn't. The government expanded the church more so than it has ever been expanded before. Because when they said, you really don't need to meet in big groups, what happened? We all went online. Broke Facebook the first week. Did you know that? The church broke Facebook the first week. There were so many churches that tried to go live on Facebook and there wasn't enough bandwidth. They had to scramble and fix that. COVID-19 has expanded the church. How many people will God reach through COVID-19? Don't let COVID-19 drive you away from church. Let it bring you back. Maybe we need to spend some time on our knees and ask him what he wants us to see through this great storm that we're all facing right now. But I can tell you this. The number one thing he wants is our worship. He wants us to worship him. That happens in this room, but it ought to happen every day in the life of a believer. Every aspect of our life ought to be an act of worship. If you're not saved this morning, as we prepare for our invitation, there's no greater act of worship than to commit your life to Jesus Christ. There's no greater act of worship than to do what Paul says in Romans chapter 10, And that is to confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead. And it says you will be saved. Verse 13 says, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. No greater act of worship. But if you are saved this morning and maybe you feel like you've drifted, like those disciples drifted way out in the middle of the lake, maybe you look and you say, what is God doing to call me back to him? I hope you'll look at that. And I hope this morning and tomorrow and the next day you will think about that and you will worship him as we stand and we sing. Number 124.